Hi there, and welcome to another OSLA podcast from the 2022 Noosa meeting of the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group. It's well known that critical illness leads to a pro-catabolic state, which can lead to muscle atrophy and long-term functional complications. Early mobilisation has been thought to slow the rate of muscle loss and potentially improve these functional outcomes. Professor Carol Hodgson is the head of the Division of Clinical Trials and Cohort Studies at the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University, and she joins me today to talk about the recently released TEAM trial. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Todd. Carol, what's currently known about the functional outcomes for critically ill patients? So I guess what we know is that patients who become critically ill have about a 40% chance of developing ICU-acquired weakness, and ICU-acquired weakness is associated with poor long-term outcome. Uh, You have reduced survival if you have um, ICU-acquired weakness, and you have worse functional outcomes. So some of the groundbreaking work done by Margaret Herridge and Dale Needham and Eddie Fan and others have shown us that, you know, patients don't recover at two or five years, that they can have longstanding um, reduction in six-minute walk tests and um, the physical function score of the SF36, which is one of the quality of life tools. But essentially, you know, our patients, uh, if they have ICU-acquired weakness, may never recover back to their previous level of functioning. Carol, over the last few years, we've seen a movement progressively towards earlier mobilisation of patients in critical care environments. What's driving this? What's the underlying trend due to? Well, I guess there was some really impressive early work done. Um, and since then, there have been some you know, other phase two trials. So let me talk about the first study. You know, in 2009, uh, Bill Schweikert and his colleagues published the first randomized controlled trial of early mobilization versus usual care. And Bill showed that in a in a population, he had a he had randomized just over 100 patients in two centers. And he showed that um, early mobilization could improve functional independence at hospital discharge. And it was quite a quite an impressive difference between the patients who received usual care and the patients who received early mobilization. And you can imagine that, you know, this was a really exciting time because we thought that early rehabilitation was potentially an intervention that could really change the trajectory of a patient's recovery. And we all believed that, um, you know, and lots of people still still do believe in, and in fact, I'm probably one of them, that, you know, if we rehabilitate our patients, they must have a better functional outcome at, at the other end. So the big question was, can we mitigate ICU-acquired weakness and, and the detrimental sort of loss of muscle mass and the loss of function that occurs in ICU during not just bed rest, but critical illness, which causes, um, you know, the inflammatory cascade and causes changes in the protein to DNA ratio within muscles. And there's a whole lot of things that happen. Could we actually interrupt that with rehabilitation and improve outcomes? So I guess Bill Schweikert really lit the fire. And then we had many uh, small trials and, and phase two studies that followed on from that, some from Australia, some from the US um, and Europe. And there were really mixed outcomes of these. So um, for example, uh, the, the SOM study that was that was published by my good friend, Stefan Scheller, that was pu- also published in The Lancet, was about 200 patients. And um, they showed that they could reduce hospital length of stay if patients received early mobilisation. But it also looked like in the data that um, in, these, in this surgical patients that 
there was perhaps an increase in mortality, um, a signal for increased mortality with early mobilisation. So it was really unclear the harm and the benefit. And, you know, there was also increased adverse events in Stefan's um, paper published in The Lancet. And so, you know, it was very unclear and we really felt that we needed a phase three study to inform this. But in the meantime, um, the practice, you know, clinical practice guidelines have changed. So in 2018, um, the Society of Critical Care Medicine updated the PADIS guidelines, which included early mobilisation, and there was a fabulous group of people involved in that, and it's a really comprehensive, very well-conducted guideline. And they said that they had um, low quality of evidence for early mobilisation and there was a conditional recommendation for early mobilisation. However, they did go on to say that they didn't feel that there was any signal for increased adverse events and that there was absolutely no data to inform the dose, the timing, you know, the the, the amount of exercise that, that may or may not improve outcomes. So there were still lots of questions, but, um, you know, a weak recommendation for early mobilisation. And, you know, I think about that time, there are about seven international clinical practice guidelines that, that were published about early mobilisation. And that has really shifted clinical practice because people have followed the guidelines um, as they should. And, you know, that was the best available evidence at the time. And, and, you know, we have definitely moved on to sort of delivering more and more early mobilisation in ICU. Carol, from a pathophysiology perspective, how does that early mobilisation work? And is it reasonable to think that uh, early mobilisation can overcome the pro-catabolic state that many of these patients find themselves in. Well, there's not a lot of data about this, Todd. So you know we're all we're all still learning, and and I am very sorry. At one point, we did talk about trying to put a mechanistic study into team, um, and we didn't have the funding, and we all felt that it was already a very complex study to be running, and maybe that was just going to tip the balance in terms of recruiting patients. Um, but there was a study that was done out of Queensland from Jenny Pratt's group that looked at patients who had sepsis and were were receiving early mobilisation, and and she actually did show that exercise might attenuate the inflammatory response. Um, so, you know, they, they you know, took, took assays and did biomarkers and, you know, they, they found that there might be an attenuation of the, of, the, of the inflammatory storm. So, you know, whether that hold true, holds true in a general population or in a larger population, we don't know because there's just not enough data. Um, but there's some indication that, you know, we could potentially stop the cytokine production or reduce the cytokine production, we could potentially um, mitigate the protein catabolism um, and potentially stop some of the electrical alterations and uh, and and indeed maybe even attenuate some of the microvascular changes. We don't know, but um, certainly you know that's that's what we were hoping might occur, um, and we really didn't mind how it occurred as long as it did occur, um, as long as we saw some change. Uh, but, yeah, I definitely think that's some important work and, and an evidence gap that needs addressing. Carol, how early is early? Uh, obviously, practice has changed over the last uh, decade or so, um, but in the bad old days, patients were asleep and heavily sedated on ventilators for quite some time. What are we talking about when we're talking about early mobilisation? Yeah, great question, Todd, and, and nobody really knows the answer to this. So all I can tell you is what people have studied. Um, I guess, I guess, 
you know, when we started talking about early mobilisation, we really meant any time during the ICU stay or during mechanical ventilation in particular, because that's what we weren't doing. We tended to sort of deliver rehab as patients were stable and almost ready to be discharged from the ICU. So early mobilisation has really meant a shift so that we're mobilising patients much earlier, um, you know, as they're stabilising on life support uh, and and shifting it through the entire period of, of the ICU stay. When we look at the studies, I guess Bill Schweikert has been one of the most successful ones in that first study, which, as I say, was 100 patients and two centres, and they managed to deliver early mobilisation, you know, literally within 48 hours, um, they say, of ICU admission. Uh, In the team trial, we were able to deliver early mobilisation within about 48 hours of randomisation, but that was you know, two days, literally um, the ICU admission to randomization was about two days and then randomization to commencement of early mobilization was another two days. So we were more like four days. Um, I think Stefan Schuller also tried to deliver it very early, sort of within two days of randomization. But some of the other studies have been much longer, within five or seven days. And we are worried that if you push it out to five or seven days that you've already lost quite a lot of the muscle mass and you've already started to have those sort of catabolic changes um, and and that perhaps it's too late at that point. But we we just don't know. We don't have that information. And, you know, uh, I guess we'll talk about the results of team in a moment, but I guess we're worried that now that you can push very early and that might cause some increased adverse events, um, but if you sit back and wait too long, then you're probably going to lose some momentum in terms of, you know, maintaining function. So, you know, it's a really fine balance in our critically ill patients. Now, for some of our listeners, this concept is a little on the novel side. It sounds uh, to many like this would be quite a, a complex operation to get a ventilated patient with inotropes and lines and so on out of bed and exercising. Can you tell us what that would involve and and how, how difficult that uh, process is? So we... I mean, I work in one of the big ICUs and and we had lots of smaller ICUs involved. So I guess I'll try and talk generally. As with anything that you do in ICU that's a complex intervention, it's something that really does take some training. And probably the best way to train um, staff to, to perform early mobilisation safely is to, first of all, understand the literature around this, you know, that we have some documents that are um, are consensus-based around what might be safe. Um, So knowing the safety consensus guidelines around how to mobilise mechanically ventilated patients I think is really important. Um, Knowing how to measure what you're doing so that you you can sort of look at, you know, what what you've actually achieved. Um, And then training staff and and we use a lot of simulation training. Um, so we run uh, training for our staff, but we also run external courses um, where we do some early mobilisation work. And we use simulation training within that where we actually get one of our staff members to act as a patient and we stick tubes and ETTs and ICCs and ECGs and, you know, pretend that, you know, you can actually download apps onto your iPhone, which um, simulate a a critically ill patient. You can simulate a patient desaturating or having an arrhythmia, and you can do all of this just off an iPhone with a, you know, showing a nice screen. It's really very, um, you know, amazing what you can do now with a bit of technology. Uh, and, And that's, in my opinion, the best way to you know, to sort of perform it. And of course, then you need to understand what's acceptable in your intensive care unit. So there are some units who have a great culture for early mobilisation and rehabilitation, and there's other intensive care units who really don't have a great culture of mobilisation. And 
you know, this needs to be a very interdisciplinary discussion so that everybody agrees. Um, The best way I think to achieve it on a daily basis is to, um, for starters, have have had a conversation in advance with your team to understand what you want to achieve and what you want to do. Once you've got agreement that, you know, you plan to do rehabilitation, then it's a daily discussion on the ward round about who's appropriate and that should involve um, the physio, the nurse and the medical staff member and potentially other staff if you've got other staff that should be involved in your unit. So internationally um, and, and and in fact in Australia, some units use OTs and some units use allied health assistants and there are other staff that might be involved. But whoever needs to be involved in that discussion, a really clear discussion about the goals, the goals of treatment for that day, how you want to achieve it, the best time to do it, the number of staff that are going to be required and who should be there. And then you divide up the tasks so that it's really clear as as per any other um, intervention that we do in ICU, it's really clear whose role is what. So usually the physio is in charge of the intervention just in terms of the actual delivery of either sitting over the edge of the bed or standing or whatever you're trying to achieve. Um, the nurse at the bedside, we tend to ask them to be responsible for the lines and the ETT and the ventilator. Um, the medical staff, if they need to be nearby in case the patient is a little bit unstable or has been on inotropes or you know, if ever you need to call them in. And then additional staff, depending on how many people you need to be safe to deliver that intervention for that particular patient. And then we perform a bedside assessment, which includes, you know, how cooperative the patient is, how stable they are at the time, you know, all of the usual things that you would assess, as well as the patient's strength. And depending on their strength assessment, if they can move their arms and legs against gravity, then we would usually try and treat them against gravity. So get them up and sitting over the edge of the bed so that you're engaging um, head and trunk control. Uh, and, you know, and and progress from there. But that's the sort of thing I think that needs to be taught, you know, uh, properly. And, you know, we, we you, you don't get that as an undergraduate. This is, you know, something that you learn on the job. It's really important that intensive care units, I think, understand that this is something that needs to, you know, have some significant training with their staff. And, and as I said, the best way to do that really is with simulation. You couldn't have picked a better acronym for a study than TEAM with all of that in mind. Can you tell us what TEAM was, how the study was set up? Yeah, so TEAM was a program of research which, you know, really predated me. So I'm going to um, just acknowledge the previous work of people like Linda Dennehy and Sue Burney and Meg Harold, who um, did pilot studies and phase two studies and point prevalence studies around Australia and New Zealand and really tried to inform current practice and, um, you know, tried to look at, uh, you know, an intervention of early rehabilitation within a single centre where they could really control what was being delivered and make sure that it was a, you know, a very, an intervention with high fidelity. Um, And so when I started work at the Anzac RC at Monash University in 2011, I think Ronaldo said to me, you know, Carol, the last organ that we need to study is the muscle and, you know, you need to be the one to deliver this trial and, you know, I really want you to lead this and we're going to start with large um, multi-centre observational studies to define current practice and then we're going to do a pilot study and blah, blah, blah. So that, you know, really that's what we did from 2011 till now. So that's over a decade. That's what we've been doing. We've been just working through a very um, systematic program of research to make sure that we um, knew what the best outcome measures were so that we um, understood what standard practice was or usual care so that we did updated systematic reviews so that we had the best international data at hand. 
we tested our intervention in a pilot study to make sure that it was feasible and safe and that it would allow separation between the intervention group and the control group. Um, and then, and yet, and, and you know, it wasn't until we'd done all of that that we started to apply for national funding for the large trial. And you know, we were really lucky, I think, to get that large trial funded. But we had done our we had done our background work and we had done it well. Um, and I think that's something that I would really like to emphasise for anybody who's interested in doing a big clinical trial. You know, it's going to take a lot of your life, so you might as well do it really well. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful. You know that. Uh, the methods centre and the the methodological experts really guided me down the path to doing all of that background work because it informed us very very well for the for the larger trial. Can you tell us about the intervention and how you uh, uh, differentiated between the two groups? So um, we randomly allocated patients who either receive early active mobilisation or usual care. And so the first thing um, that I'll say about early mobilisation is that the intervention included interdisciplinary discussion on the ward round every day about the goals of treatment and about the maximum level of mobilisation that everybody thought would be safe, Um, that we used uh, a safety checklist, which was based on our um, published national international consensus paper on the safety of mobilising mechanically ventilated patients. We minimised sedation, so every day we asked that patients had sedation interruption or minimisation to allow mobilisation to occur, and we used the more senior physiotherapists. If if we could if we could have two different physios treating patients, we asked for the more senior physios to treat the intervention group patients because we were really asking them to push the the rehabilitation in terms of the highest level of mobility, but also in terms of the you know the duration of mobilisation. And then in the intervention group, we assessed them if they, um, you know, if, if we could minimise their sedation and they were stable physiologically, then we would perform that mobility assessment where we did looked at their strength against gravity. And if they could move their arms and their legs against gravity, we would immediately go um, to a, a, an ICU mobility scale level of three, which is sitting over the edge of the bed. And if they could sit over the edge of the bed, we would see if they were safe to stand. And if they could stand, we would stand. And we would work them to the highest level of mobilisation as quickly as possible. And the duration of time that we spent doing that exercise depended on which level of mobilisation they could achieve. So, for example, if they couldn't move out of bed, um, they only ever got 30 minutes per day. But if they could stand, we aimed for 45 minutes per day. And if they could walk, we aimed for 60 minutes per day. And we assessed the patients in the intervention group individually every day Um, So we feel that we adjusted the dose of mobilisation per patient per day to really try and achieve the best dose of mobilisation every day for that patient. And the usual care group was absolutely usual care, which meant that it was usual care mobilisation and rehabilitation delivered by physiotherapy staff not involved in delivering the intervention whenever feasible. Carol, how did you measure whether you were able to separate the two groups? Uh, Was it based on time or based on workload or how was that done? We based it on both the highest level of mobility, which is measured using the ICU mobility scale, which is a a measure that we developed with an international group, but we have tested it for feasibility, reliability and validity, and we have a minimum clinically important difference. So we've done a lot of work just with that outcome measure to try and make sure that it was um, you know, a, a great outcome that would, would be easily used between the groups. So we used highest level of mobility and we used the duration of time, the number of minutes that they receive rehabilitation. Um, and, and that essentially um, is how we measured our dose. 
One question that's come up is around the primary outcome. Um, most of the purported benefit is uh, of early mobilisation relates to its effect on functional outcomes, but the outcome that you chose was a combination of, of survival and um, hospitalisation at 180 days. Can you tell us about how you went through the process of selecting a primary outcome? Yes, I can I can tell you um I can tell you a lot about the primary outcome, Todd, and I, I'm just thinking where to start with this story because it's quite a good story. So when we'd finished our pilot study, we found absolutely, you know, the problem is that if you look at functional outcomes, there's survivor bias because there's a whole lot of patients who don't survive and you're only measuring the functional outcomes in the patients who do survive. So um, for a study where randomization occurs, you know, at baseline and then a whole lot of patients die, if patients have a better functional outcome, is that okay if it's at the cost of increasing mortality? So, of course, you're going to report mortality, but if your primary outcome is a functional outcome measure, it really disregards mortality, which we think is probably <laughs> as important, if not potentially in some patients' opinions, more important. Um, and we didn't have in our pilot study any difference between our, I mean, it was a small pilot study. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't powered to look at a difference in functional outcomes, but there was no difference. There was no signal for a difference. So it would be very unlikely in Australia that a, a funding body would ever fund a grant um, where you said that you did, hadn't found even a signal for benefit in, you know, in the pilot study. So that's the first thing. Part of it is about you know, survivor bias and what is the best outcome measure and does that in, take into account mortality? But part of it is really pragmatic as well. Like you, you want to do a trial, you need to get money to do a trial. Um, you need to pick something that's going to be attractive to both patients and researchers and and patients um, and and funding bodies. So, so when we started talking about it, um, there were a few options and the positive outcomes had been Bill Schweikert's study where he had said, um, you know, that, that there was improved functional independence at hospital discharge. Again, that doesn't take into account survivors. Um, Stefan Scheller's paper where he said that, you know, that improved hospital length of stay, and that was something that we were really interested in, but, you know, because that would reduce costs and that would be great for an economic analysis, but, you know, we were worried about increased mortality in that study. And Jenny Pratt's had also reported improved functional outcomes in her small pilot study of sepsis patients, but they had also had increased mortality. So we thought we really need to have an outcome measure that is patient-centred, that includes mortality, and that somehow looks at something that's going to be functional. And I went to speak with um, one of our great researchers at Monash University, Paul Miles, Professor Paul Miles, who's an anaesthetist but has done some fabulous large trials, and he was using two functional outcome measures. One was disability-free survival, which we considered, but we really couldn't justify it and we couldn't power a trial on it based on our pilot data. And then he suggested days alive and out of hospital. And the great thing was that our pilot study had actually shown a big difference in terms of length of stay. So that was something that we could sell in terms of grant applications. Um, and then we looked at it from, uh, you know, we had a few consumers on our on our um, advisory committee and we took it to our consumers who all said, as far as they were concerned, getting home was very, very important in terms of an outcome and that that would be an indication of functional recovery if you could go home as opposed to not go home. And so we used Days Alive and Out of Hospital. Carol, you had the good fortune of being able to release the results earlier this year. What did uh, team find? 
Yeah. So we found separation between the groups in terms of the duration of mobilization and the highest level of mobilization achieved, particularly in the first week of this of post randomization. Um, however, we found absolutely a no difference in between the groups in terms of the primary outcome. Uh, and in fact, the point estimate of the primary outcome favors the usual care group, not the early mobilization group. We found no difference between the groups in terms of um, time, survival time. If anything, again, survival time is slightly, there's no difference, but the, the point estimate would favor the usual care group. We found increased adverse events in the early mobilization group, so the intervention group. In fact, we found over 2.5 times the number of adverse events. And these were um, mostly things like oxygen desaturation and cardiac arrhythmias and altered blood pressure. We also found that in patients who had an adverse event in the in the intervention group, they were more likely to have two or more adverse events, like repeat adverse events. And lots of people have said to us, oh, look, there's two criticisms to that. And the first one is that the adverse events were short-lived and they stopped the intervention, but they didn't necessarily cause any harm. They weren't reported as a serious adverse event. Um, however, we don't know if having ongoing adverse events is associated with a worse longer-term outcome. Um, and in fact, you know, we're trying to look at some of that data now to see if we can pick whether it's uh, associated with worse long-term outcomes or whether there is difference in the patients at baseline that might make them appear you know, more unstable or, or more likely to have an adverse event. And I think it's actually probably going to be the former, but, you know, I'm just hypothesizing now and these are all secondary analyses which are not pre-specified. We also found increased serious adverse events. So we had seven serious adverse events in the intervention group compared to one. And I just want to put this in perspective. You know, this was a 750-patient study so of the patients that were randomised into the intervention group, which is half of them, only seven had a serious adverse event, there was absolutely no unplanned extubation, fall to the floor, cardiac arrest or removal of a line. So, you know, the physios did a great job with that. There were five patients who had a serious arrhythmia, which was mostly um, VT. There was one patient who had prolonged desaturation, which needed an intervention. And we had one patient who developed um, left-sided um hemopresis after being mobilized. And we think that probably what might've happened is a, a PE or a DVT was, um, you know, thrown off and that patient actually had a stroke. Um, and, you know, that again, you know, I'm just reporting the data. Of course, you know, some of these things may have occurred with or without the intervention, but there were seven serious adverse events compared to one um, in the intervention group compared to the usual care group. In terms of the secondary outcomes, we had a lot of functional outcomes that we measured at six months, and we did this all by telephone with patient-reported outcome measures. There was absolutely no difference between the groups for six-month survival, for ventilator or ICU-free days to day 28, or for any of our functional outcome measures at six months, which included health-related quality of life, disability, um, activities of daily living, anxiety and depression, cognitive function, or PTSD. Harold, it's been suggested by some that this is really a trial of early mobilisation versus very early mobilisation and possibly reflects the fact that uh, units that wanted to participate in a study like this were already interested in the concept. What's your perspective on this? 
Yes, I completely agree. It is a study of very early mobilisation compared to usual care mobilisation. And in the case of usual care in our study, it was a very high standard of mobilisation. And I think that probably does reflect the fact that sites who put up their hand to participate were particularly interested in mobilisation. I also think it attests to the fact that physios are very uh, hands-on people. And if they know their patients in the study, they probably, you know, um, can't can't uh, can't not treat them and and you know there was a there was a lot a much higher level of usual care mobilization than we expected. That could be partly because practices changed. You know, there's, as I said, eight, seven, eight international guidelines on early mobilisation that have been published since we started the trial. So it's 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 indeed practice is changing, but I think it it, it probably also is an indication that, you know, there is um, some creep in terms of mobilisation rate within the sites that participated. And what that means is that, for example, in the early mobilisation group, our patients sat out of bed Um, between days one and six and in the usual care group they sat over the edge of the bed between days two and seven and in the um, intervention group they stood at about day three and they in the usual care group they stood at about day five after randomization and walking again in the intervention group was day five and in the usual care group day seven so we did intervene earlier but it was only earlier by a couple of days That's one of the other concerns that have been raised about the team trial is the uh, difference in duration of exercise as one marker of dose uh, from eight minutes a day in the control to 20 minutes a day in the uh, intervention group. Is this enough? And do you feel as a group of investigators that you've done enough to demonstrate a, a change in the primary outcome? So there's there's several things to say about that. The, the, I guess the first one is that we we more than doubled the dose in terms of minutes between the intervention group and the standard care or the usual care group. And while that's only a 12-minute difference, we delivered that every day, seven days a week for the time that the patients were in ICU. And if you think about doubling your exercise dose the maximum that you could tolerate every day for seven days a week, I think whatever you did to double it would be a huge difference. Um, so, you know, whether we should have done it every day is a, probably a better question. You know, I, I, I do think that we had significant separation. Was it enough? Well, there are many studies now which have started to record very carefully the dosage that's able to be delivered. And it's rare for patients to be able to deliver more than 20 minutes or so to their critically ill patients. And I think that that's really telling us something. The other thing is that we did have increased adverse events and serious adverse events. So I'm worried that, you know, if we'd done any more than that, you know, what what difference that would have made in terms of adverse events and serious adverse events. And the last thing that I want to say is that everybody says, is that enough to have shown a difference in the primary outcome? But the primary outcome still favoured the usual care. Like at no in none of their sensitivity analyses or the subgroup analyses does it ever favour the intervention group. So it's possible that if we increase the dose, we would actually favour the usual care group even more as opposed to favouring the intervention group. I don't know. It's entirely possible that, you know, by pushing our patients this early and, you know, remembering that the usual care group was a really good standard of mobilisation. We were sitting patients over the edge of the bed within a couple of days after randomization, and we were standing them by day five. You know, it was a really good standard of mobilisation. So, 
you know, it's possible that pushing them harder in terms of more minutes um, and, and, you know, a higher dose may have caused more harm. We don't know. But, you know, I think these are really interesting questions about dose and delivery and timing. Um, and we've just started to tip the iceberg about informing dose, which is really what I would like the team trial to be known for. I'd, I'd like it to be not known as a trial of early mobilisation versus, you know, standard care as no early mobilisation. This is really a trial looking at a dose of mobilisation, a higher dose of mobilisation and what effect that might have. Which segues beautifully into my last question, which is where to now for research in early mobilisation? What do you think that the future holds? So we've got a lot of work to do with the data from the team trial. I think we've got our next year or two mapped out in terms of um, the subsequent analyses that we want to do. Um, we've got new PhD students starting with us to do it. So the first thing I'll say is that um, we'll be, uh, we, we've started the process of an NHMRC guideline for early mobilisation in intensive care. And there's a large team of us working on that. So we've Publish, we've just had accepted in the New England Journal of Medicine Evidence our updated systematic review of early mobilisation, and this is looking just at the six-month outcomes. So that will help inform our guideline. We're also about to publish a systematic review on adverse events during mobilisation, um, looking at, you know, the difference between early mobilisation and usual care, uh, including the team trial. Then we'll write the guideline next year. Um, we also need to look at patients who, you know, this only includes mechanically ventilated patients. We need to know about patients who aren't mechanically ventilated in ICU because that's becoming a larger population in our units. Um, within the data that we have from the team trial, we're looking at some subgroups to look at the heterogeneity of the treatment effect. And we think that we have identified some groups that may do particularly poorly. And if we pull them out, do the rest of the patients do well? That's some of the questions that we're starting to look at. And uh, our management committee are meeting again tomorrow to just agree on the path forward around some of these analyses. Um, do we need to look further at the adverse events and the timing and how they relate to dose? So um, I don't know if you remember the AVERT trial that looked at very, very early rehabilitation in stroke patients, but they did a CART analysis of their dose and they looked at whether there was sort of a difference between patients who received a higher level of mobilisation compared to a longer duration of mobilisation and outcome. So that's some of the things that we're starting to think about. Um, and Finally, I guess, you know, the next trial I think will need to be a trial that looks more closely at dose uh, and we haven't agreed what that would be yet because we need to look at the team data to make sure that we're clear which groups of patients we want to include and which parts of the dose that we've delivered we think might be able to be manipulated for benefit or harm. Uh, and they're all questions that we're hoping we can answer with the data that we've got in terms of just informing the next trial. But we're, we're certainly not at a point where we can do that yet. Sounds like you've got your hands full as usual, Carol. <laughs> Congratulations once again on the release of Team. It's a, an incredibly important trial in, in, in intensive care. And thank you for producing it. And thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Todd, can I just say a huge thanks to the patients and their families who are involved in the study, to our sites who were amazing, including throughout the pandemic, to um, allow this trial to be completed, and to the very hardworking uh, coordinating centres and management committee who, uh, you know, as as I've said, it's a big team, um, and you know, I'm I'm really it's a, been a privilege to to lead it, but um, there's a big team involved, so thank you, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. 
Get access to hundreds of podcast interviews, modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps, or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.